Good evening. You're listening to the news with Paul DiRienzo for Thursday, September 1st, 2022. This episode of the news with Paul DiRienzo is dedicated to one story, the death at age 91 of one of the most consequential figures of our time, the last Soviet premier, Mikhail Gorbachev, who died earlier this week at the age of 91. You can subscribe to this program at pauldirienzo.com, Paul, D-E-R-I-E-N-Z-O.com, at soundcloud.com, and Apple Podcasts, as well as many of your favorite podcast hosts. A team of 14 investigators from the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, arrived this morning at the Zaporozhizhia nuclear power station to witness damage caused by shelling at what is the largest nuclear facility in Europe and one of the largest in the world. The facility has six power reactors and generates half of Ukraine's energy. In March, Russian military forces captured the power plant on the banks of the Dnieper River in the southern part of the country, where intense fighting continues. The plant is no stranger to conflict. In 2014, a pro-fascist militia was blocked by security forces when they tried to forcibly enter the compound. The Ukraine government has accused Russia of using the plant as cover for artillery and rocket attacks on cities across the river in territory still held by Kiev, while Russia has reported more than 50 artillery shell explosions near the plant, including an explosion at a building storing radioactive spent nuclear fuel. The head of the IAEA is Rafael Grossi. He spoke at the plant where the attacks continue today. Grossi says the IAEA is here at Zaporozhizhia to stay. We are aware of the current situation. There has been uh, increased uh, military activity, including this morning. Um, until very recently, a few minutes ago, I have been briefed by the Ukrainian regional military uh, commander uh, here about that and the inherent uh, risks, um, but weighing the pros and cons and having come so far, we are not stopping. We are moving now. We know that there is a, um, an area, as you know, the so-called uh, gray zone, where the last line of the Ukrainian defense uh, comes and before the first line of the Russian uh, occup occupying forces uh, begin, uh, where the risks are significant. I am going to uh, consider the possibility of establishing a continued presence uh, of the IAEA at the plant. Rafael Grossi is head of the IAEA. The visit is expected to continue until Saturday. Meanwhile, Russia and Ukraine accused each other of shelling the area and trying to derail the visit. The heavy shelling delayed the team's progress toward the plant. Russia's defense ministry is reporting Ukrainian forces sent a group of up to 60 scouts to try and seize the plant. The ministry says the Ukrainian troops arrived in seven speedboats, but that Russian forces, quote, took steps to destroy the enemy using warplanes. The Russian-backed mayor of the nearby city of Inner is Alexander Volga. He's accusing Ukraine of nuclear terrorism because of the military attacks near the nuclear plant a few miles from his town. At the moment, radiation levels are normal. The shelling only pierced the roof of the building. They wanted to carry out a terrorist act that would lead to the spread of radiation around here and further towards Europe. This is being done in order to prevent the International Atomic Energy Agency from entering the plant. We have a lot of evidence to show the International Atomic Energy Agency, in particular, how the Ukrainian army has shelled the nuclear facility and the nearby city of Energodar. All these attacks are documented, and all of this will certainly be presented to the International Atomic Energy Agency mission, which is coming here. 
This is what Ukrainian politicians and their military are afraid of, because they are terrorizing not only Russia, but also their own citizens who live here. Alexander Volga is the mayor of Energodar, a town near the Zaporozhizhia nuclear power station held by Russian troops in southern Ukraine. In related news, Russian President Vladimir Putin snubbed the funeral of the last Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, today. He also denied Gorbachev, fondly known throughout the West as Gorby, a full state funeral. State television showed Putin solemnly placing red roses besides Gorbachev's coffin at Moscow's Central Clinical Hospital, where he died on Tuesday. In seven years as Soviet premier, Gorbachev unleashed reforms of the creaking Soviet state, resulting in its collapse. The changes led to the end of the Cold War, freeing Eastern European states to join the West NATO Defense Alliance, in a sense lighting a fuse that exploded this year in a war between Ukraine, a former Soviet republic, and Russia. But the Soviet leader was also instrumental in signing nuclear disarmament agreements with the United States that closed the lid on the Cold War and made the world measurably safer. Gorbachev had a surprisingly warm relationship with United States President Ronald Reagan, cooling the enmity between the two nations that brought the world to the brink of nuclear war on several occasions. During a 1987 joint New Year's speech, Gorbachev listed the achievements of the two leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, in Washington, President Reagan and I signed the treaty on the elimination of intermediate and short-range missiles. That treaty marks the first step along the path of reducing nuclear arms, and that is its enduring value. But the treaty also has another merit. It has brought our two peoples closer together. We are entering the new year with a hope for continued progress, progress towards a safer world. Reagan, in another speech in Berlin, had urged the Soviet leader to tear down this wall in 1989. That's exactly what happened to the Berlin Wall. An admirer of Gorbachev, although they never met, is Daniel Ellsberg, a political activist best known for leaking to the New York Times and Washington Post the top-secret Pentagon Papers' history of the Vietnam War. Ellsberg pointed out he's Gorbachev's junior. The Soviet leader was born on March 2, 1931, and Ellsberg was born 34 days later on April 7th. He's also 91. Ellsberg says the world would be a better place if Gorbachev was leader of Russia today. Well, it makes me very sad to realize that we've lost him. It reminds me what the world lost when he left power uh, many years ago. I think the world would be a vastly safer and better place if he'd been able to stay in power even a few more years, because I think he was the single statesman in my lifetime of any state who entirely appreciated the urgency of getting rid of nuclear weapons and of, of lowering nuclear danger. Uh, he also understood the climate problem very well, as he showed in later years. And he was a, a genuinely uh, committed to democracy. So uh, I think it was uh, it was a tragedy that he wasn't in, in office. And I've uh, he's, he's spoken generally very wisely over the years since. So happens he's just a few weeks older than I am. He's exactly the same age, born in March of 1931. And so uh, he was, I would say, there was no place, on, no one else on earth that I would rather have had the chance to uh, to talk with. 
I would uh, I would especially have wanted to ask him <clears throat> what his understanding was of the Russian, the Soviet nuclear plans, which I knew as of 60 years ago, because I'm sure they were as insane as ours. And I think he was the man who, in his policy of glasnost, of openness, to a degree that we've never had over here, uh, I think he could have opened his safe and exposed to the world how insane this nuclear planning was and uh, worked toward a change. So uh, I think we lost we lost a great chance for survival uh, when he was removed from office. What were the nuclear agreements that he was able to uh, close a deal on with the United States, the Reagan administration of all people? Well, to start with, he was... He had the only conversation with Ronald Reagan that two heads of state have ever conducted about the actual elimination of nuclear weapons, and to do that without rhetorical or you know, metaphorical meaning, but uh, actually want want to do that. That was in Reykjavik, Iceland, in 1986. Uh, but as a result, now Reagan was so wedded to the notion of the Star Wars, the Strategic Defense Initiative, are, are totally fantastical hopes of, a, uh, of an umbrella over the United States that would uh, nullify nuclear weapons, that he, he wanted to break through the anti-ballistic missile treaty we had, which was uh, one of the most important arms control measures we had. Gorbachev couldn't do that, and so they couldn't agree. But the next year, in 1987, he and Reagan signed the single agreement, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Missile uh, Agreement, IRBM Treaty, which actually eliminated a whole class of nuclear weapons and led to their destruction under inspection. The only time that's happened, and it so happens that, uh, not by coincidence, that involved the most dangerous weapons in our either of our arsenals, our Pershing II missiles, which were stationed in Germany and which could have... Uh, reach Moscow in a matter of minutes, essentially a no-warning attack, which decapitating their leadership. And uh, their SS-20s, which were very greatly feared in Europe, those were both eliminated and destroyed. We haven't seen anything like that since. And in fact, that treaty, which was one of the most important we had, was rescinded by Donald Trump and immediately afterwards uh, on the other side by Putin. So we don't have that anymore. Along with, uh, we've rescinded the ABM Treaty under George W. Bush and uh, virtually everything else except the START Treaty so far, which uh, was renewed by Biden when uh, Trump was about to let it uh, lapse. And that one, by the way, puts limits on the uh, number of weapons we threaten each other with, but eliminated none, led to the destruction of none. So that's almost the only one we have left now. And um, the I, my hope, though, was that Gorbachev, I have absolutely no doubt, was prepared to go much further. Uh, even Reagan, I think, was prepared to go much further, except for this obsession he had with the um, totally delusional notion of a total protection against weapons, the Star Wars 
Last question. The IAEA has just arrived at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine. And I know that's about nuclear power, but the idea that a foreign army, terrorists, what have you, could use a nuclear plant as a weapon by attacking it and releasing its poison into Absolutely. the atmosphere. Absolutely. That's been true uh, you know, since these plants uh, were first produced. What they amount in the guise of, of uh, Eisenhower's uh, Atoms for Peace program, which encouraged the proliferation of reactors all over the world, what they amounted to was the planting of nuclear mines uh, in all over many countries. I think there's uh, some 50 of them in, um, in China, for example, if, if not more. And uh, many in Ukraine, aside from the Zaporizhia, which is the largest. Uh, in other words, each of them is something that could be triggered by an attack, either by, as you say, a terrorist or by an artillery uh, or a cruise missile anywhere. Uh, that could be another Chernobyl or, or greater and uh, irradiate essentially forever uh, very large parts of the country. Together, they could just... Uh, I, actually, one of the uh, uh, one of the planes on 9-11 may well have... Been, the one that went down in Pennsylvania may well have been headed toward a nuclear plant, which would have been you know, a catastrophe that the world has actually never seen yet. And if that's true, it was the, the courage of their passengers which forced that plane down, which protected us from that. But yes, uh, just as each side is using and has used always its nuclear weapons to blackmail the other, to threaten the possibility of, uh, of uh, a nuclear winter even, of, of killing most people on Earth, uh, not just the adversaries. But the same, by the same token, a threat against nuclear reactors uh, is something that can be wielded or triggered even by a much smaller power, by an individual attack. The uh, nuclear reactors in uh, uh, actually the, the making weapons material in Israel could eliminate Israel as a state, essentially. There have been threats like that. So Putin is pioneering now of nuclear blackmail that uh, has been possible, has been implicit as a risk throughout the nuclear age. And from now on, it's, it's hard to imagine that it won't be used again by others. It's there It's there in every country that has nuclear reactors. I'm sure there's well more than 40 of those that have in their own country, uh, as I say, nuclear mines, in effect, that can be threatened either by another state or by a terrorist group. All right, great. I'm going to leave it at that. Anything like to add? I think that wouldn't. We'd have a different world if we if we had uh, other Gorbachevs as head of states. But uh, there's only been one of those in my lifetime. All right. Well, I'm glad we had that, and I'm glad we have you. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us. Daniel Ellsberg, a political activist, best known for leaking to the New York Times and Washington Post, the top secret Pentagon Papers history of the Vietnam War. In national news, a video of President Joe Biden taking a shot at his right-wing opponents has gone viral, mocking former President Trump and raising the specter of U.S. military intervention against any attempt to overthrow the government by force. And for those brave right-wing Americans who say it's all about keeping America, keeping America's independent and safe, 
If you want to fight against the country, you need an F-15. You need a, something a little more than a gun. The clip has been viewed over two million times. Conservatives accuse Biden of threatening violence against his opponents. Many mention Afghanistan, where the United States left in chaos after decades of war with poorly armed Taliban fighters, despite superior American weaponry. Now returning to our major story. Although Mikhail Gorbachev is a popular figure in the West, he has few admirers in Russia, where he's seen as the architect of the collapse of the Soviet Union and a loss of power and face, slumping from the arch-rival of Washington to just another country. A professor of political science at the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona is Pat Willerton. His TEDx talk, The Russian Soul, went viral in Russia in 2013. Willerton says Gorbachev was a leader of tremendous consequence. Gorbachev is viewed as a leader who initiated changes in, in the Soviet Union that brought down the Soviet Union. Uh, he's viewed as a leader who ultimately was unable to control processes that he initiated, he and his team. He had a whole team. It's, it's always a group. He was unable to control them. Perhaps no one could have controlled them. But in the end, his legacy for most Russians is he brought down their country. As friends of mine there would say, Pat, of course you like him. He brought down our country. Why wouldn't you like him? Your two favorite Russian leaders are Gorbachev and Nicholas II. And Nicholas II was essentially the leader that was in charge when the Russian empire fell. Your favorite leaders are our most uh, disliked. I mean, these are the two least popular leaders. They're, they're viewed as the greatest failures of Russia of the last, I don't know, 150 years. Did communism or socialism in the Soviet Union fail because of Gorbachev? They were in decline over a 20-year period. The nickel version is for 25 years they pursued guns and butter. They improved the material quality of life of Russians. They were investing in housing and consumer goods and agriculture. They were spending like crazy at home, and they were uh, uh, spending abroad. They were, they were supporting Cuba to the tune of about $5 million a day. They had Eastern Europe. They had Indochina, parts of it, Mongolia, then throw in, you know, Nicaragua. So the point is that it was a guns and butter they, that they simply didn't have the resources to meet all of the demands, but they couldn't let go. So in the end, they were essentially declining economically. It was hidden, in a sense, from Russians. But Gorbachev and other leaders of his time talked about this. They knew the country was going down into the toilet. And so when he became leader, and he had a reputation as somebody that got things done, something had to be done. And so he began that process. It's not that five and a half years of Gorbachev ended the Soviet Union. It was a matter that the country was in decline and his policies, they failed. The political system slowly eroded to the point where there was a coup. The economy became out of control. There were incredible arms agreements, et cetera, with, with the United States, and there was a reaching out. And I think Russians were excited about that. But their judgment now looking back is that they were basically had. We said to Gorbachev regarding NATO expansion, not one inch eastward. That's what Secretary of State Baker said to him. And of course, we know the story. NATO expanded hundreds of miles. Economic chaos, massive corruption, the state is basically broken down. It's not really functioning. This is a lot of what people remember. Would we be in a war between Russia and Ukraine right now if Gorbachev had been more successful? We're living in today's world, and we've got a war going on. 
we will have, once again, completely different, 180-degree different assessments. Here we will compare this horrible leader, this 21st century Hitler, to Gorbachev. What might have been if we had the silver-minded, thoughtful Gorbachev as leader? The discussion there will be the opposite. It will be, thank God we have Putin in charge. Thank God we have somebody that brought back the country, brought back the state. We're not allowing... Uh, Ukraine to become a part of NATO. Can you imagine if Gorbachev were in power now, what mess we would be in? I think that would be the way most Russians would look at this. So this will be a completely different view. We will, the contrast will be very negative about Putin compared with what might have been with Gorbachev. Theirs will be the opposite. We dodged a bullet. We don't have him, someone like him running around now. Uh, so I, th- I think that's the one thing. The other thing is, to be honest with you, every Russian leader Gorbachev on would have or would, the only one living now is Medvedev, would have supported taking action. The Russians have been cleared for 30 years. Gorbachev, Yeltsin, Medvedev, Putin, they're all clear. We will never tolerate Ukraine joining NATO. None of them would. So I, there's nothing unusual about what Putin's doing from the Russian standpoint. The, the This notion that he's some kind of insane leader or that he's uniquely different is is really, uh, I think, false. When you look at Russian leaders, Medvedev would have done this. And we have to remember, he dealt with Georgia. We have to remember Gorbachev used force in the Baltics, that Yeltsin used force in Chechnya. So, you know, in this regard, Putin is acting the way I think a mainstream Russian leader would act regarding this issue. All of these leaders opposed Ukraine joining NATO. So, I mean, this I understand this isn't our view. I'm just giving you, you know, the Russian view. Pat Willerton is professor of political science at the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona. And finally, Mikhail Gorbachev, his bald head with the jagged birthmark, his avuncular style and believable commitment to peace, might be credited for making him a celebrity in the West, if not Russia. The matryoshka dolls within a doll of his visage for sale in Red Square to the unusual advertisement he did in the 1990s to raise money for his foundation for the Pizza Hut restaurants, then opening up along with McDonald's and other U.S. chains throughout Russia. Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut. In a sign of the times, in March, McDonald's closed its 800 Russian restaurants, first opened in 1990, selling the restaurants to a Russian investor. And that's the news for Thursday, September 1st, 2022. The news was produced, written, and anchored by myself, Paul DiRienzo. You can follow this podcast, published almost daily, at pauldirienzo.com. That's Paul, D-E-R-I-E-N-Z-O.com. It's also available at Apple Podcasts and at SoundCloud.com. Search for the news with Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.